Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we take philosophy of education out into the world with Eduardo Duarte, Hofstra University. Eduardo Duarte, thanks for joining us. Now tell us, how did you get started doing philosophical work on education? Okay, well, I want to say first of all, we're, let's, we're at the corner of Congress and Daniel Street in the city of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on March the 28th. And it's uh, supposed to be spring by the calendar, but it feels actually feels like early spring here in New Hampshire. So yeah, this is where we are. So uh, how did I come? Well, it's interesting. It's a pretty direct uh, and not that complicated uh, answer to the question how I came into philosophy education. And it was, um, in a certain sense, I fell into it. Uh, and 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 the way that the, the real straight answer to that is that in 1990. Um, I was done with my coursework at the New School. I was a graduate student in philosophy at the New School for Social Research. And at that point, I was done with my coursework. I had attended the New School with the intention of focusing on critical theory. I was a bit of a Habermasian coming out of Fordham, where I did my undergraduate philosophy work. And coming out of Fordham, I had a commitment, sort of a dual commitment. Uh, theoretically, it was to uh, the legacy that sort of was still working itself out with critical theory. And then in terms of uh, social justice commitment coming out of Fordham, was really the question of, uh, of the justice of inequality, or in, the injustice of inequality and trying to take up the question of equality. So I had a real sort of praxis orientation, you know. Okay. So, you know, coming out of Fordham, I wanted to... Uh, to do something uh, with philosophy that will enable me to would enable me to to sort of tackle uh, the questions of uh, social justice, right? And so the, critic, uh, the Frankfurt School seemed to be the most promising uh, way, and not only that, uh, but the New School with its legacy uh, also. And I wanted to stay in New York. And so uh, two things happened. First, Agnes Heller, who was the one who sort of secured my position and recruited recruited me, so to speak, to go to the New School, said to me, and the first time that I met her in an interview, she said. I told her that just that, and she said, this is very dangerous. This is very dangerous. You should not go to the street on 14th Street, which is literally outside of the new school, and sure. tell the hot dog seller uh, how he should think. And it really <laughs> threw me off, and I thought, hot dog seller? You know, I'm talking about you know, the increasing levels of homelessness in the New York City, and I'm thinking about... But, but I got her point. Her point was it, that you need to first sort of work out... Hmm. This is really Adorno's sort of legacy. You really need to work out a critique uh, and, and understand what critique is about before you sort of launch dogmatically into sort of like t- telling people how they should be or solving the problem. You don't solve the problems of, of justice uh, theoretically first. You sort of, you have to do critique. Right. So anyways, I went to the new school and I was working on that, but then I found myself drifting away from that a bit because the most interesting person at the new school for me was a person by the name of Reiner Sherman who was doing sort of a Rentian, uh, Heideggerian work and he was for the most part one of the most foremost Heideggerian scholars in the world and over time I sort of really drifted towards working with um, or under in, in sort of uh, Brian Sherman although I didn't work directly with him until I started writing my dissertation with him. Okay. 
the end of the coursework period, I was finishing up my uh, coursework, and I said, you know, I want to work with Sherman. And I had a project that I was working on. It was a project of first philosophy. It's called ontology. And I had a question I was pursuing, but then Sherman became very ill. And then within a year, it was about 1992, I had almost oh, the right, entire yeah. dissertation manuscript written, passed away. Yeah. So I was left with about 200 pages of work. My, my director, my advisor had passed away, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And so I turned to the person who's, I was a research assistant to a person by the name of Richard Bernstein, who was a well-known pragmatist, and he said, uh, and also involved somewhat in critical theory, and he said to me, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, what I'm interested in is, you know, sort of looking at what's going on right now in the contemporary educational world, and that is this sort of cultural wars that are playing themselves out, this debate that's going on on university campuses. And I'm interested in looking at that, and I'm also interested in Cornell West. You know, Cornell West is this sort of interesting hybrid of critical theory and pragmatism. And I'm interested in looking at Cornell West's work as well as Richard Rorty's work. And he said, well, okay, you know, these are figures that Bernstein knew, sure. were prominent. And I thought, you know, I'm going to make a shift here. I'm going to return back to some early interests. And then I'm going to work on West and, and, and Rorty. And I started really, I threw myself into reading everything I could on Cornell West and Richard Rorty. And then as I started doing the genealogy of, of both of them, I sort of found myself working on Dewey, who was Bernstein. Like sure, Bernstein was yeah. one of the first people to work on Dewey and wrote the Dewey book way back when. And then I started working closer with Bernstein and I started reading a lot of Dewey and I was getting really into Dewey and all of a sudden I found myself thinking that what philosophy really was about was education and what education was really about was philosophy and where they met was with this thing called, you know, this critique and praxis. And so all of a sudden I sort of found myself understanding that there was something called philosophy of education or educational philosophy and this is in fact what I wanted to do. So I ended up writing my dissertation using Habermas's Discourse Ethics uh, as a way of thinking about the problem of quote-unquote balkanization in higher education and so my dissertation was beyond fragmentation towards polyphony an application of discourse ethics uh, to the problem of multiculturalism not and not by problem I don't mean that multiculturalism was a problem sure. it was just a, 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 uh, a phenomenon that was uh, appearing within higher education that was forcing higher education into a legitimation crisis right. using Habermas's work. So anyway, I wrote myself into this world called philosophy of education and when, just as I was finishing my work and I started working on Paulo Freire as the outcome of this, he, he's the one who kind of sealed it up for me. At that moment when I was just finishing my dissertation, I got a letter in the mail from Hofstra University and they were looking for a philosopher of education, someone who was interested in critical theory. And basically it was like it was written for me and I thought, well, okay, I'm from the East Coast. Sure. And so I sent my CV in and they were just astonished that somebody that had a PhD in philosophy was interested in possibly taking their position. So I, I got the interview and to make a long story short, I've been there ever since uh, for the last 18 years at Hofstra and I've been finding my way through uh, philosophy of education in that way. So that's the story. Oh, so, okay. So a couple, a couple of small questions. One, uh, you seem to have, uh, you said something about uh, uh, realizing that education was philosophy, and philosophy was education in some sense. Yes. Can you just tell us a little bit uh, more about that? Uh, okay. So there's this quotation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, and this is for anyone who's listening to this podcast. Find it and 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 and, and get it right. But I believe it's from Democracy and Education, and I believe it's something to the extent to which, you know, the, the something like the highest form of philosophy is education. Or, and the highest form of education is philosophy, or something of that effect. It, it, it's, it's basically saying they're two sides of the same coin. And that was the moment, let me tell you, where I sort of said, yes, <laughs> that's it. Now, 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 here's this is interesting. For anyone who, of my friends or colleagues that would say, wait, Dewey is the one? 
Well, I mean, some people have fallen off of their chairs at this moment because, you know, I'm known as the sort of Heideggerian, continental, Laurentian sort of guy. And for people that are listening to this, I mean, there's this very different approaches and different styles of writing. Uh, but it is the case, and I'm confessing it now, that John Dewey's very interesting way of describing the uh, uh, philosophy and education as two sides of the same coin and democracy and education, uh, that was the breakthrough for me. And so what, it, what it's come to mean for me now is much more than what maybe Dewey was talking about and that has to do with the entire genealogy of philosophy going back at least in the West but I also am very interested in the connections with Eastern philosophy particularly Taoism and Buddhism more so now uh, some 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 Hindu work because I'm, I'm, I'm reading the Bhagavad Gita with a good colleague a friend of my colleague Stacy Smith who I've worked with before we're doing a reading on that but but back in the beginning of philosophy particularly in the West um, education and philosophy were inextricably linked and for me the entire genealogy of philosophy can be read as uh, a dist- as, as, as a distinct form of education as education you do philosophy as what our colleague uh, Robbie McClintock talks about is as formative justice I mean it's for- it's a, it's a sense of formation. So ph- philosophy is one way of describing, generally speaking, education as formation. And so the, you can read back the entire history of philosophy as uh, an engagement with the fundamental question of education. is How do we come to be who we are? Sure. And so I have a very, at this point, I've developed a very wide category for what I mean by philosophy. It's all the ways in which human beings take up uh, and pursue their formation uh, as an expression of their freedom. So through art, through music, and any ways in which you create the singular work that is yourself expressed in some piece of work is what I call philosophy. So it's, it can't be it can't be re, something that can be reproduced mechanically. It can't be manufactured. There's a particular way in which I talk about work and the work of art, and to me that captures the essence of education, and that's also what I call philosophy. Yeah. So making some choice about who we ought to be and sort of how we ought to go about it. Now you, you seem you said you said a number of different things about sort of what you're known for for working on and sort of the ways in which your early uh, career interests have kind of played out uh, in the present moment. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been working on uh, a little bit more recently. So uh, you say uh, you know talking about right. the work of art, and sure, sort of the singular so, work. Right. So I mean, yeah. what, what's happened is is that I went through an early period where I was sort of playing out the critical theory stuff, and at a certain point I shifted back um uh, what, what happened was is that I um, I went through this period where I was working on Paulo Freire in particular, and as I was working on Paulo Freire's work, I got more interested in the sort of foundations of his work, the genealogy of Freire's work. And at about 2004, I engaged in, in this year-long experiment that's now became the book Being and Learning, which is published about seven years later. So what I've been focusing on since 2004, so the last 10 years, has been the project of what I call originary thinking. And so the very thing I was just talking about, in which the human, human being sort of have this sort of uh, a recognition that they are free, right? So in this very Freirean, even Deweyan sense, that we have this the profound sense that, wow, we're free and we can do something, we can make something. Um, I, I call that moment the moment of, 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 of origination, or the moment where we see that it's possible to make something or make something original. And that, to me, is where learning emerges. So the project of originary thinking is both the philosophical uh, theorizing, if you will, mm-hmm. of that moment and tracing that moment, and as well as an articulation of the different ways in which people do that. So the project is really uh, um, captured in the book Being and Learning. Right. And this current year, what I'm doing is, is I'm going back and reading all of the original meditations that I wrote, right. and Revisit- I'm documenting, yeah. I'm revisiting and documenting that in my blog, uh, which is called Being and Learning. And so that that's the main project that I'm focused on is the the revisiting of that book, the writing that went into that book, as well as what I'm generally 
calling the project of originary thinking. Yeah. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about this field of philosophy of education, or educational philosophy as you describe it. Uh, uh, tell us, to your mind, what, uh, what questions remain? What uh, issues linger? Uh, what sorts of things ought we be thinking about in philosophy of education, sort of uh, in the short or long-term future? Well, I, this is, I, I think that what you have is there's a sort of um, place where all these different sort of what we call discourses, which are ways that people talk about philosophy. And, you know, for people that are familiar with the uh, political spectrum, liberals, conservatives, I mean, there are different ways in which people sort of orient themselves towards the questions, but pretty much we share the same questions. And the meeting point for them, for these questions, I think, of these discourses now is on the sort of realization that, you know, actually existing material justice, questions of justice are things that we need to be thinking about. I think the, what the, what the, where the field's going to go is uh, that we're going to sort of have a healthy debate uh, over the, w what are the most interesting ways to approach mm. actually existing questions of inequality. Because it seems to me that inequality is going to become the question uh, in many, many fields, but certainly in the fields of social science, it's going to drive social science in particular. And philosophy, for better, you know, however you want to describe it, is sure. within the field of social science. And so if the question of inequality drives social science for the next 10 years, let's say, as we have actually existing inequality growing and growing, then the debate within the field is going to be which are the best uh, or what are the most profitable or, if you will, sure. the most interesting ways of, uh, of addressing questions of inequality, uh, actually existing inequality. So you'll have sort of this interesting debate unfolding between what's called ideal or non-ideal theorists, phenomenologists, uh, people that are doing decolonial theory. I mean, all of these different discourses. I think well, the debate in philosophy of education is going to be uh, around... Uh, in some sense, uh, I don't want to say a competition, but it's going to be a sort of period of what Kuhn calls in-between paradigms. I don't think there'll be a settled paradigm, but I think the field's going to grow because I think a lot of younger uh, scholars and thinkers are going to find that there's a space that's opened up for them uh, to take on these questions in different ways. So I see the field becoming sort of a, a battleground for these competing discourses on the same sort of fundamental questions around inequality. And then second of all, I feel as if what will happen is... Um, you'll see some really interesting interdisciplinary work emerging because younger people won't feel that there's a need to be in one discourse or another, but will find novel ways to work, uh, you know, at the intersections of various discourses. Yeah, in some ways, so you earlier suggested that your initial sort of entry into a lot of these questions was on uh, these, this issue of inequality, and you're here suggesting that the future, uh, of course, <laughs> is, again, some uh, engagement with that same question. I mean, um, I'd just be curious to hear a little bit about your sense of, uh, uh, you know, that connection. And, well, uh, I, I think that's yeah. interesting because you could, you could. That was very, that was very, that was very astute of you to sort of bring it back to that. Oh, well, so you're just seeing your own work coming back into play. <laughs> well, I, th I think one point you have is that with, with, I mean, just look at this venue that we're in right now. I mean, we're doing sure. philosophy right now um, through the recording of this, this uh, in, a, in, a, in, the, in the in the radio format or the audio format, sure. and so, right on the street. Literally. Exactly, exactly. So we're on the street. We're in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We're not in a seminar room. So the venue has shifted. Right. I mean, literally, and the technologies for the production of philosophy have shifted to, or at least you and I are agreeing that why not experiment with it? So the sort of experimental spirit of American philosophy, which has always been the case, I would say, but it's what it makes
makes it distinctive uh, pragmatism, if you will, in New England. Look where we are, right? Sure. No, 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 no coincidence. So that the sort of co- the combined heritage or tradition of doing, and you know, just look at Du Bois' work. I mean, that's an experimental piece of work. The Souls of Black Folk, the way he arranges the book. So there's the experimental spirit. Then there are the new technologies that mm-hmm. sort of f- that carry forward that tradition. And we're on the street. We're in the world. So I think my my own, my, my point is really that sure. I think people, you know, your project, there are other people like Ron Glass's project. Mm-hmm. I mean, who is at the center for the uh, collaborative research for a more equitable California. I mean, people are using the new technologies as ways of doing philosophy in a way that's experimental, but it's also very grounded as literally in the street. And I think that's kind of what I'm sort of hinting towards. And I do think that what's going to drive it as something that's compelling is the actual existing questions of inequality. Now, you could say that's a very large sort of like sort of catch-all point, but I think it's the sensibility of accessibility. Um, There's also the the feeling of, of, of opportunity and the aspiration that things will become a little bit more uh, transparent, perhaps, or that you know the academy will become interested in questions of equality, or the print it'll see itself as still invested in questions of, of, of academic freedom or free speech and these sure. sort of things. And I think these are all different ways that we're trying to take that up. So in that sense, you know, perhaps it's just my in, it, there's a coincidence of my own work coming sort of down to earth in a way. But I, I feel like it always has been. I just feel that what I found sort of uh, uh, I was impatient with a period of time where educational theory and philosophy of education, in my in my judgment, um, sort of went through a dogmatic phase mm. where it became sort of um, um, uh, a victim of its own success in the late 90s mm. through, you know, critical pedagogy and identity politics. There was a, an audience that was growing, and in the way that popular culture figures sort of get thrown into the, right. the limelight, I think that there was this sort of decay from critique into pop critique, and what ended up happening was is that a lot of the meaningful, important questions that drove that initially started to feel less uh, uh, like they were yeah, questions that were being interrogated and more so dogma uh, yeah I guess dogma that was being proselytized and so it didn't feel as if it was we were really taking up the questions of justice and that's when I faded away from that scene that's when I sort of withdrew from that scene because I felt that it wasn't authentic you know and so now I think that now through different technologies and a new scene that's arising and that old scene having sort of faded away I think as I said in a recent article uh, like a fireworks display fading away uh, into the dark night so may okay. this movement fade away into the dark night of the old millennium, um, I think that we have a new sort of arising uh, sort of possibility. So that, that, that's what I see is the, the, the link there. Yeah. Eduardo Duarte, thank you. Thank you so much, Winston. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. Very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.